Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. But we are in week four of our summer series, The Best of Times, The Worst of Times, and we're getting into Acts chapter six today. And we've seen kind of a back and forth in Acts so far. There's been some internal stories about just the church, and there's been some external stories. So it started out, Acts one and two are very internal. Um, Jesus commissioning his followers to start this new movement. And then in Acts two, when they wait for the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost to come and empower them. And then really Acts three, four, and most of Acts five are external stories where they're out in the public doing the ministry, preaching, teaching, healing in Jesus' name, and meeting opposition from the religious elites who aren't such a great fan of this new movement that is going to be called the church. Um, So as we get into Acts 6, we're going to go back to another internal story about, uh, again, this encapsulates, this story today encapsulates this title of the series perfectly. It's simultaneously the best of times and the worst of times. So we'll jump right in to the beginning of our text and see kind of an issue or a problem that sort of creeps up here that has potential catastrophic uh, possibilities. So let's start Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Just the first half of that verse sets the stage. It says this, But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. So we see here the best and worst all together. The believers multiplied, best of times, Rumblings of discontent, worst of times. We start to see a possible issue that, if not taken care of, can be catastrophic to the future of the church. And maybe you've heard stories about church splits before. Maybe you've been a part of a church that has split, and you have your own horror story about that. Now, sometimes the, the reasons that churches split are large issues. Maybe the pastor has a moral failure, and it fractures the church into. I've heard of that way too many times, even in recent years, even large established churches. Um, it just, it just it goes sideways very quickly. Or maybe there's a power struggle between leadership and the church or, you know, the, whatever. Uh, and so that causes an issue in a church to split. Uh, sometimes there, a church will change their doctrine or theology, and the membership is just like, well, we didn't sign up for that. We, we believe what the Bible says, and so we're out of here. So there are sometimes big reasons why churches uh, split. But there are also sometimes really small, silly reasons why uh, churches split, like the color of the carpet. Just going to let you know we're going to change it to gray pretty soon. I got a carpet guy coming on Wednesday to do some measurements and price checks for a home project. It's going to be gray, guys. The chairs are going to be gray. So just to let you know, if you want to leave, you know, just to let you know ahead of time where we're going, okay? It's gray. Neutral. We don't want to offend anyone. Uh, As much as I love the Christmas colors that we've had for four years, the green and the red, we're going to go neutral. Anyway, uh, sometimes things like that, but one of the craziest stories I've ever heard, so there was a seminary professor, his name was Dwight Pentecost, what an awesome last name for a professor, seminary professor. He, uh, he tells the story of an actual church in Dallas, Texas, many years ago, who split, literally split, went to court because the two groups wanted to keep the facility, so they went to the Supreme Court who wouldn't decide on it, but then they ended up splitting because at a church meal, One of the elders got a smaller piece of ham than the child sitting next to him. 
the, in the court findings and the testimony and the documents as they went back and back and back, that is what they came to was what set everything off. A disagreement between an elder in the church and a child at a church meal caused other things that were under the surface to go crazy and the church split after that event. Now that is one of the craziest stories I've ever heard. But the church here is dealing with an issue that if not handled can cause the church in its very infancy, maybe in its first year or two here in Acts 6, to completely go off the rails and we would not maybe be here today. Now, what we've seen here, though, is that there was rumblings of discontent is what we see here. So what, we, what we're going to look at today for just a few minutes is that the apostles needed help. The church needed help. That's the main idea today is that they need help in this situation. And so let's read the rest of this opening part of Acts 6, verses 1 through 7, and see what the issue really was, what happened, some details, and then the solution, and we'll talk about it for a little bit here today. Acts 6, back to the beginning at verse 1, it says, But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God and not running a food program. And so brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. We'll look at him the next two weeks in more detail. Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timun, and Pumbaa. No, wait, that's not the next name. Timun, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. Verse 7, so God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. So we see the problem and the detail of the problem and the solution and in the aftermath of that. But that what the, the issue was, they needed help. There are layers of things going on here in Acts 6 that are important to, to note about why was this an issue, what was really going on. So as the church begins, it starts in Jerusalem, and it really starts as an offshoot of Judaism, which is an ethnic religion. But what's happening is people who are not maybe ethnically Jews are converting slowly to Judaism. And so we see here a multi-ethnic church that's beginning. Now that's not the problem. That's actually a great thing, and it will continue on and on and on in the book of Acts. And even today, Christianity is, there's not even a close second, if there's even another religion that is even in second place, of a more multi-ethnic religion other than Christianity. Every continent on the globe uh, is a Christian, has Christians in it, okay? I don't know, hardly any other religion can say that. And it's not that it is, you convert to this certain exact style. It's like churches, our church looks like a different church down the street in the same town, let alone in a different country or continent where every church is going to worship and serve in their own unique way within their setting. So multi-ethnicity is not an issue, but it did pose a challenge that the apostles had to deal with. Because as we read, there are Greek-speaking Jews and there are Hebrew-speaking Jews. And so we, it's, we're not quite sure the main issue. There's a couple of things we'll look at for just a second. But it's not just that they're speaking different languages. It's that, you know, with different ethnicities, there are different customs and norms and priorities within those um, ethnicities that are causing this rift to take place in the church. It's possible that it's not just 
cultural differences, but geographic differences. So we don't know this, but some scholars would say, well, the Greek-speaking Jews are in Jerusalem for a celebration at the temple, where they would come a couple times a year, a year that we'll look at here in a minute in Psalm 121. Uh, but it's possible that they've come from out of town and they're saying, hey, we didn't get our two-day prime shipment of food for our widows like we were promised here in Jerusalem. So something's wrong. So something's happening. But what's the real issue, it's maybe just a, a logistical issue. It's going to be easier for the food to get distributed to those in need in one city rather than, especially in an ancient culture, to get maybe dozens or hundreds of miles away. But the problem is not that it's just a logistical issue. It's that the perception of this with the people. The people, whether it's accurate or not, whether it's true or not, are feeling slighted by the leadership of the church because they're not being cared for. So the perception is getting out of control. It's becoming, you're, you're, you're favoriting these people who are ethnically this way, and you're leaving us out. And they see it as this problem, even if it maybe were not the case. But that's how church splits can start, is a misunderstanding or misconstruing the real problem or feeling a personal slight because we're not being served or cared for. And instead of trying to figure out what the problem is, we just complain about it, and then problems can ensue. So there's grumbling, complaining, fighting, and comparing, and the church leadership needs help. But what do they do? How do they go about getting the help that they need? What we'll look at for a few minutes are really what I'm going to look at, two paths to this problem solving, two paths to get the help that we need. One that will not work, spoiler alert, and one that will work. Uh, so we'll look at both of these. And I, I, I'm going to mention this just because it's interesting. Um, so this kind of two-part uh, message, uh, the Lord woke me up. I wrote it down April 25th at 4.30 in the morning. God woke me up to give me these two main ideas on Acts chapter 6. Now, that very rarely happens to me. Normally, it's in the mode of reading and studying and praying during the week or the weeks leading up. Like, I know where I'm going, but all of a sudden, I'm just asleep, and I wake up, and God gives me these two, these two phrases that we're going to look at, and I knew immediately it was for Acts chapter 6, which was, at the time was three months away. So just in context there, if you don't like this sermon, it's God's fault. Okay? I'm just going to let you blame him on, because he literally woke me up from my sleep uh, to give me this, these two main ideas today. But again, I just thought that was interesting that, uh, I don't know if that's ever, maybe once or twice that's happened, but it's just an interesting, and so I had to write it down so I could remember uh, how, how we're going to go about this today. So we're going to look at how we can get help, one of two ways we can do it, two options that we have when we need help in our own type of situations. So the first option when facing a problem is what I'm going to call delusional desperation. When we are in a bind or a pickle or faced with a sudden problem or when a problem has kind of under the surface kind of grown or sprouted up, one way we can face this is with delusional desperation. Let me define both of these parts of this word or this phrase here for us real quick. The delusional part means that we don't see the situation clearly or accurately. We see it incorrectly. Maybe we aren't aware of a certain bias that we have about this problem, so we're choosing to not see a certain way through this because we don't want to. Sometimes our delusion makes us overlook an obvious solution. The answer is right in front of me, but I'm just so, I'm just looking, looking, you know, don't, or suppressing that I don't see the obvious. And then the desperation part of that, on top of that is, then it leads to quick, rash decisions, which are rarely good. We don't take time to make maybe a cost-benefit analysis or a cons and pro, a pro-con sort of chart. Uh, sometimes in our desperation, we just make a quick decision to please someone else which we looked at a little bit last week, pleasing people doesn't work. Sometimes in our desperation, we just try to make the easy decision, the path of least 
resistance, which again, most of the time doesn't work very well. So we can choose delusional desperation, but as we'll see, it doesn't always work like we hope it will. And we'll look as an example or a case study. We'll look quickly at the ancient Hebrews in the book of Exodus. So their story begins in captivity, uh, slavery in Egypt, where they've been for 400 years. Like their ancestors, ancestors, ancestors were also slaves in Egypt. But God miraculously frees them, right? He sends the 10 plagues for the Pharaoh to let them go. When they're faced between the Red Sea in front of them and an army behind them, the Lord miraculously splits the sea in half to let them cross over. And then as the army behind them crosses through, they are drowned when the sea comes back together. So God has provided for them again and again and again already in a short span of time. Yet they still deal with their problems with delusional desperation. Because as they start traveling, just starting on their journey in the desert, they begin to worry about food, which isn't, you know, that's fine. That's good. If I were in the desert, not knowing how long I'm going to be there, I'm going to start to think about food at some point. But I want you to look at their delusional desperation here. We're going to look at a progression of this and how it gets them really nowhere quickly. Exodus 16, verses 2 and 3. So they, they worry about food, provision. Here's what they say. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The same word that Luke used in Acts 6, grumbled, okay? The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. So they have a legitimate need. They need help. That's the main idea today. It's not wrong that they're needing food, that they're concerned about food. But maybe you've said this before. Maybe, you know, my son will say this all the time. I'm so hungry, I'm going to die, you know. Um, and he needs, I guess, tons and tons of protein and calories, so maybe it's true. Um, but we say that. But the Hebrews here, they're saying, I'm so hungry, I wish I were dead. It's kind of a weird twist on that. Now, there's no indication of mass starvation and death in the camp. There's no report here in Exodus 16 that thousands have died from lack of food. They've just barely started on their journey. They took provisions. They probably took some snacks with them from Egypt. They were loaded up on their trip out to the desert. But yet they're here freaking out. They're delusional and desperate. And I'm not trying to make, you know, light of, you know, I'm not saying, oh, I'm going to die. It's like suicide. I'm not, that's not what we're doing. We're just saying that they are freaking out for no reason. They're delusional and desperate. And so here's, what does God do? He hears them. He hears that they need help. And so he provides manna, right? He provides every, every night, every evening, this supernatural food falls from the sky so they can come out in the morning and have more than enough that they need every day to eat for that day. And then after they eat that and it's all gone, what are we going to do? The next day it comes again and again, even two times for the Sabbath day where they're not allowed to go out and pick up food. God provides exactly what they need along the way in the desert. And so God does this for a period of time. So the problem is solved. No more help is needed, right? But their desperate, uh, their delusional desperation continues Numbers 11, 4 through 6, says the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. So now their delusional desperation is saying, Our diet is too restrictive. We're tired of this magical food from the sky. You know, we're just going to complain about that. Uh, I know that we didn't have any food, and now we do, but, but 
Uh, yeah, I know that God provided supernaturally, but, and then they say, here's what, here's what comes after the but. But remember Egypt, guys? Man, we had meat. We had cucumbers. We had garlic and onions. And I'm like, yeah, you know what you, know what you also had? Chains around your arms and legs because you were slaves. See, how do, that's like the definition of delusion. Remember Egypt, guys, all the food that we sat around? No, you didn't. You had barely enough time to eat while you were getting whipped to make more stuff for the Pharaoh. Like, it was not what you thought it was. But in their delusional desperation, they're thinking about things incorrectly. They have the wrong perception of what used to be. And so it's caused this issue so much so that Moses gets exasperated with them. And he goes to God and says, literally, you can read it in Numbers 11, God, what did I do to deserve this? He says, God, I can't take this anymore. They're complaining about magical food from the sky. What am I supposed to do with that? How, what, what do you want me to do? So what's interesting here is we see a connection between uh, this story and Acts chapter 6. When Moses suddenly calls out to God for help, God does what we see in Acts 6 in the early church. He provides people to carry the load for him. Remember, the, the apostles are like, hey, there's so much ministry that needs to be done. There's only 12 of us here in one area. We can't do this. So we need people to come alongside and help us to carry the load of ministry. And God does the same thing for Moses here in Numbers 11. He's, he says, hey, pick 70 of the best men in the, in the nation and bring them here, and we're going to train them and lead them. They're going to hear these menial complaints. You don't have to deal with that. You've got other things, larger things to do. Let them handle it, and then whenever the, the issue gets too big for them, then it will come up up to you. And so God provides the same interesting solution here that we see in Acts 6. But the delusional desperation of these people gets even worse. So then God does provide meat. He provides quail that flies so about three feet off the ground so they can capture it, kill it, and eat it. So now they have the meat they wanted. And he says, you're going to have so much meat, it's going to come out your nostrils. You're going to get sick off this meat. You wanted it so bad, I'm going to give you what you want. And some, so here's a, here's a moral of that story. Sometimes God will give you what you ask for, but then you won't want it. So sometimes when God says no, that's the best answer. Now, I know that's not easy to say or hear or live or experience, but that is sometimes true. Sometimes no is the best answer. And sometimes if God gives us what we ask for, we would not be able to handle it and wouldn't even want it when we got it. So that was free. That wasn't even written down. But God woke me up from a dream. He's going to, you know, help me uh, through this. And so here we go. So then later they've traveled and they are on the precipice of the promised land. The whole reason they've escaped Egyptian bondage is to have their own nation, their own land, their own place to be their own people. And they are right here on the edge. And so Moses decides to take 12 men to go out and explore this new land and come back and report to them what it looks like. It's amazing. It's wonderful. Let's go take it. It's the promised land. God's going to give it to us. So then, though, when they come back, they say, do you want the good news or the bad news first? People say, we want the bad news first. So the 10, spy, 10 of the 12 spies say, okay, the bad news is uh, there's powerful people that live there in this land, in this foreign land. There are large, fortified, walled cities that we're never going to be able to conquer and get through. There are even giants that live there. We look like grasshoppers in their sight, they say. And so because of this false information that they're given, their delusional desperation, here's their response. Numbers 14, verse 1. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled, there's that word again, against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. So they repeated their own delusion again. Then it gets worse. Why is the Lord bringing, his, bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? 
Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So their delusional desperation did not trust what God had said, did not believe in his promise, did not believe that this land was for them. And so rather than trust God and take what he was going to give them, they said instead, let's pick an unknown, inexperienced leader that no one knows. Let's travel back through the desert so we can be slaves again. That is insane. Who would talk that way? I'll tell you who, someone operating through delusional desperation. They didn't trust God. They didn't, they didn't pray about this decision. They didn't listen to others. They didn't listen to the other two spies and their good report. They didn't even try and fail and then reassess. They didn't even try. They didn't even go in there and lose a few guys and then get snowed. They're not even trying it. They're just saying, okay, we can't do this. We're not going to do it. We're not really sure God knows what he's talking about. So we're going to go back and be slaves. But we escaped that. God brought us through that. We're going to travel back through the desert for weeks to then go back and be slaves. They panicked. They chose the familiar over faith. And in the end, their delusional desperation led to defeat and death. Because right after, in Numbers 14, right after they make this decision, we're going to abandon Moses, we're going to pick a new leader, we're going to go back that way and be slaves again. God tells Moses, he says, hey, I'm done with these people. I'm going to destroy them and start over with you. I'm done. We're through. I've get, I had enough patience for enough centuries here. They've questioned me enough times. We're through. It's crater town, baby. Let's go, you know? And Moses says, no, let that, no, just hang on. Let's hang on. We, we're, let's not do that. Uh, and so God says, okay, here's what we're going to do instead. I won't kill them now, but they're not going to make the promised land. They wouldn't take it when I was going to give it to them. They're not going to take it at all. And so he says, here's what we're going to do. They're, you're not going to wander around and around and around for 40 years until all of you are dead and your kids and their kids will take the land. That's pretty terrible, but it's because of this delusional desperation. Remember the description that we looked at. Delusional desperation doesn't see a situation clearly, ignores biases, overlooks the obvious, then makes a quick, rash decision to try to do the easy thing. And look what it led them to. Nowhere. All that they had to go through was for nothing because they operated from delusional desperation. It doesn't provide the help that we need when we operate that way. But clearly, luckily, the church in Acts 6 did not do this. They did not operate in this way. So what did they choose instead? What they chose instead of delusional desperation is divine dependence. We'll look at through this quickly, and then we'll, then we'll get to... Um, honoring you as our volunteers and tie this all together here with a nice little ribbon, ice cream ribbon, if you will. So they chose divine dependence. So here's the distinction here. Delusional desperation is inward looking. It's why we make mistakes. It's why we panic. But divine dependence is outward looking. So Psalm 121, let's read it. It's just eight verses, and then we'll, we'll explore it for a second, uh, flesh this idea out, and then, and then close today. Psalm 121 says this, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? So again, the same idea, help. I need help. I need assistance. Where does it come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither sleep, slumber nor sleep. 
The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. Delusional desperation puts all the pressure on me. But divine dependence puts all my trust in God. There could not be two things further from one another, and I'm so glad that that's true. So it says here at the beginning, I look to the hills. So this psalm, we mentioned, I did a series on, through these psalms a couple years ago, where this is a series of psalms that pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem for a big feast a few times a year, where they would recite and sing these. It's kind of their little hymn book, okay? And so when they say, look to the hills, they mean this literally. As we're walking, we're going to walk probably up these hills in this terrain that's unknown. And so the hills equal danger, the hills equal unknowns. There could be thieves and robbers lurking, trying to, you know, raid th this caravan of people going to Jerusalem a couple times a year. There could be wild animals lurking about that's going to, you know, take some of the children for their, you know, afternoon snack. Now, there's going to be, even says here, the heat and the sun, the elements outward as they're walking for several days sometimes. There's danger in the hills. But the psalmist writes here, where does my help come from? Delusional desperation would say, Oh, no, I forgot my bear repellent. That's not good. Or, man, I forgot my sunscreen. I'm going to roast. I'm going to burn. Or I'm not prepared. You know what? Let's just not go. Let's just, or, you know, we started. We're not prepared. Let's go back. That's delusional desperation. But the psalmist here talks about divine dependence. Five times in eight verses, he says, the Lord does something. Not me. Not up to me, the Lord, five times. Four times, the Lord is referenced again, he. So nine times in eight verses, God is mentioned. More than one time per verse is a lot in this psalm. And then five times, it says that he watches over us. So we can know that God is always there. He's always aware. He knows, and more than that, he cares about you and about me. We can know that God is my source. He's my provider. He's my help. Again, notice the difference. One approach is full of worry, panic, fear that leads to mistakes. The other approach is full of faith, full of patience, full of confidence, and full of wisdom that gets me to my desired end. That's the distinction that we're looking at today on our two avenues toward this help. Back to Acts 6, the apostles see an, a problem brewing. This is an issue. And they say, God, we need help. We need a solution. We can't do it all. And what they see, as they see clearly, take time to evaluate, seek God's wisdom and insight and direction, they see the solutions right in front of them. So the problem is this ministry that's important is being overlooked. We can't manage everything that's happening as the church has now exploded to thousands and thousands of people. They're like, we can't manage all this. We need help. And so what they discover, though, is God had already given them everything they needed. Remember the first verse there? The church had grown. So they say, we can use the growth to solve the problem. God has given us people, manpower, to fulfill the mission he has for the church. That's what divine dependence looked like in Acts 6. They, they used wise counsel to make this decision together to figure out what the solution might be. They, they also went through due diligence. They picked the seven. They said, hey, you people know these guys, so you pick the seven best people that can do this job. So they had to do, you know, think about what's the criteria. So it says they had to be well-respected. There's a track record for these men. 
They were full of the Spirit, so they weren't just a random outsider. You know, sometimes, that, again, that's that we freak out. So, okay, uh, you, you're a warm body, help, you know. Uh, that's not going to work. So they had to be full of the Spirit, have the best interest of the church at heart. And then it says full of wisdom. They, can they handle this responsibility? Can they do what needs to be done? Or are we going to have to then keep tur- turning over, replacing these people all the time? Um, prayer was involved. They prayed over them before they sent them out to do the ministry. And then it says everyone liked this idea. They had buy-in from the church at large. Now, when we make decisions, you want buy-in. Now, it doesn't mean everyone is going to like every decision that you make, so don't get confused on that. But what we're looking for is those people who we value their opinion, who have a, a spiritual mindset, as long as there's no serious objection from those trusted people, uh, the buy-in is key on that decision for the church. And the result was growth and the mission was accomplished. So that's how the church grew and continued its mission in Acts 6. And as we celebrate today, it's the same story here for us. So I just want you to know um, how thankful I am for the help that you provide, that this is a body that we run together, we're working together, uh, we're doing good work in the community, we're making a difference, you're making a difference. We love you. And I'm so thankful for your passion for the church, your interest in the church, your investment in the church, your willingness to give and serve and do all the things that you do to make this thing happen. And as we continue to grow and develop and do even more things, uh, I'm just so thankful and uh, anticipating what God is going to continue to do. And it's not through me, okay? It's not. It's through you. We just want to let you know, I just want to let you know how, how honored I am to serve in such a, a giving, generous, amazing church. You are the best of the best, and I know that the best is still yet to come. So God, thank you today for First Century Church. First Century Church is not Stephen Wilhoyt. It's not about Stephen. It's not about Kim. It's about the work that you've called us to do and the people that you've brought alongside us to do that work. It's about the work of the ministry, which is not just about preaching. It's not just about leadership. It's about every other thing, even small things seemingly, even things that get overlooked or underappreciated. It takes all of those things to make the ministry of this church happen. Thank you for every single volunteer in this church. Thank you for their commitment to serving you by serving the local church. I thank you for the growth that can happen through serving both relationally as we grow tighter as a church and also spiritually as we grow closer to you through serving you. That's a great way to grow in our faith is by serving, by being sacrificial of our time and our energy and our effort. Thank you for the investment that these people make on a regular basis basis, whether it's an upfront thing or a behind-the-scenes thing, whether it's upstairs or downstairs, whether it's sporadically or all the time, thank you for every part of this body. May we, may I never take that for granted. May we know how special this thing is that we've got going on at First Century, that we have so many people so invested in the work, in the ministry that you're doing here and all over the place. Thank you again for those who have dedicated themselves to your cause and by extension dedicated themselves to this local body. 
I thank you and praise you that those who may in the future serve, that you're going to equip them with everything they need to do what you've called them to do within this body. I pray that everyone would feel loved and appreciated and accepted as part of a serve team as they volunteer and give, that you would just bless them beyond measure, that you would give them all that they need as they give you all that they have. We thank you and praise you again for this awesome, wonderful, amazing body that is first century. And we pray by faith and believe in faith that the best is yet to come. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.